you see a lot of stuff, right? There's a lot of commonalities, right? We, we like food, we all sleep, we're all human, right? So there's a lot of things that the gap is bridged. But then there are also places where you see differences that are absolutely jarring. Absolutely jarring. Differences in, in deep values and beliefs. Things that are so ingrained in you that you assume them to be universal. And it's shocking when you find out that they're not. That there are people who have a fundamentally different way of looking at life. It creates this incredible dissonance with everything it touches, right? On the military side, we, we couldn't train the same way. We couldn't fight, we couldn't train them to fight the same way. We couldn't expect the same sacrifices and commitments because they valued things completely differently. They operated from a completely different perspective than we had. The Christian life has moments that are very similar to this. And it makes sense when we realize what it means to be a Christian. When you are born again, when the Holy Spirit regenerates you, you are moved out of what the Bible calls the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light, out of the kingdom of this world, and you are made a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And there are many things that don't seem all that different, right? We still eat the same food. All the surface-level stuff is mostly unchanged. But the deeper things of these two kingdoms could not be more different. And there are times when that difference stands out in particularly stark relief, where it is just absolutely glaring. And the thing is, we all know that old kingdom, the kingdom of darkness, well. It's natural for us. We were born in it, right? It, it, all, everything of that kingdom is innate. It's inherent there. Its values, its methods, they're comfortable, to our flesh. The teaching of Jesus that we're going to see today, that we're looking at, it's going to hit our sleeping flesh like a bucket of ice water to the face. It is so unnatural, so different from what our flesh wants to do, from what seems like the normal way to move through life. And the first time you read it, the first couple of verses, just, frankly, they will seem wrong. But what we're going to see as we move through this is that justice is a good thing. Justice is good. But justice, mere justice, is not enough. Mere justice is not enough. The kingdom of heaven is not one merely of justice. It is one of grace and mercy. And we, as citizens of that kingdom, are to be ambassadors for those very things in all that we do. Let's go ahead and read. We're going to pick up in verse 38 of Matthew 5. This is the word of the Lord. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. 
Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Let me pray for us. Lord, we uh, need your help this morning. Um, these are difficult words as we understand them and, and process them. They're hard words. There's, they bring up so many questions of how to navigate this and, and how this can be true. Um, so Lord, I just confess our dependence on you this morning. I pray that um, I mean, we don't need my words, we need your words. So I pray that that's what would come through me. Lord, I pray that you give us soft hearts that are um, malleable to your spirit, that you would bring conviction where we see our flesh has had rain, and ultimately that you would work in us in a way that glorifies your name and conforms us more into the image of Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. All right, guys, so I I want you to be honest with me because I think we really have to we can't kind of just gloss over this one, right? If we just kind of skip over the surface of this one, we will miss what we need to see here. When you hear, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one that is evil. Does that sound wrong? It sounds wrong. It sounds messed up. It sounds reversed, right? We should resist the one that's evil. And an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, that sounds like, that sounds fair. That sounds equitable. That sounds just, right? It sounds like Jesus is wrong. It sounds like he has it backwards. So what's going on here? How do we make sense of what Jesus is doing? Well, first we need to talk about the the teaching that he's addressing. This eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth thing. This is something that is known as the Lex Talionis. Um, it's found in several places in the Old Testament. It's also found in other legal codes around the ancient Near East. The idea of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. The idea is proportional justice, right? Um, the fact is that if somebody was wrong, they were allowed to essentially be avenged. But that vengeance was capped, right? Because we don't tend to uh, cap our retaliation, do we, Right? I mean, this starts with little kids, right? One little kid pokes the other one. Does the other one poke with the same amount of intensity and pressure? No, he comes back with like a right hook, right? Like it always escalates and it keeps growing when you're an adult, right? Watch any sporting event, right? One guy says something and then the next guy's, you know, amps it up, right? That's our human nature, right? We don't want to just get back what was taken. We want to escalate it so that person doesn't dare do that again and so that we win. That's what we do. Right? And so Lex Talionis was a principle that the Lord gave to Israel to help society function, right? If you are wronged, you should get to recover something from that, right? But if somebody stole a goat from you, you don't get to kill them. You just get a goat back, right? It caps it. So it's a certain provision for justice for the one who's hurt, but it's also meant to keep things in check, to keep things from escalating, Right? And that, does anything sound bad about that? That sounds, that sounds good. That sounds like the sort of justice we should want, right? Justice for those who are hurt, but justice that is measured and that fits, fits the crime. This is a good thing. Of course it is. It's what God gave to Israel to help society function. Where sin is. Right, but we need to ask the question, why did God give it? 
right? God gave this provision because it's necessary due to the presence of sin, right? And we've seen that elsewhere in the Sermon on the Mount. There are things that God gave, particularly to Israel, right? Like the certificate of divorce. That was an accommodation. Knowing that sinners are going to break their marriage vow, it was a protection for victims, right? It wasn't a promotion of divorce. It was a protection for those who are hurt by divorce in a broken, sinful, fallen world. This is, has a similar kind of role, right? Lex talionis is necessary because people sin, because there is unrighteousness. You have to have some way of having a functioning society in the midst of that. It's a way to manage sinful people in a way that things can function. But is the management of sin God's ultimate intention for the world? No! Management of sin is not God's ultimate purpose. God is holy and perfect. He cannot abide sin. He hates sin. He is going to do away with all sin. Right? So these things that he gives that are meant for a broken world, right? They are important. They are a common grace to us that help us function in this broken world. But they, are, they don't describe God's ultimate intent. They don't describe true righteousness. Right? True righteousness goes beyond managing sin. Lex Talionis is good for restraining sin. Early in the Sermon on the Mount, oaths. It was the same kind of idea, right? Promote truth-telling by having people put themselves on the line with oaths. Same kind of thing. It's these things to manage sinful nature so that society can work. Right? It's important that we note here that when Jesus is talking, one of the ways that this passage has gotten messed up, and it's gotten messed up a lot, if you look at what people have done with it, is that Jesus is not talking about government policy here. He's not saying, get rid of this for the government. Well, one of the most famous guys who argued this was Leo Tolstoy, the novelist. Right? He argued that this passage meant that all government rules and regulations should go away, that they're wrong right, on the grounds of this. And it's just bad hermeneutics. Right? Jesus is not talking about how government should function. There's other places in Scripture we go to. That's not what this passage is about. The Sermon on the Mount is describing the kingdom of heaven. It's talking about the citizens of God's kingdom and what they do. It's talking about the personal ethics of this kingdom, not how government should function. Like, Talionis is a good thing for governments. But we've got to put that aside because that's not what Jesus is dealing with here. Right here, Jesus is speaking to the citizens of his kingdom, the people that he is bringing in and making this new people. And what he's saying is that for citizens of the kingdom, there is something greater. There is something better than Lex Talionis that the citizens of the kingdom get to pursue. Eye for an eye is not the pinnacle of righteousness that the kingdom of heaven manifests. No, there is something greater that we get to chase. The best Lex Talionis can do, if you do it perfectly, is bring justice. And justice is a good thing, but justice is not enough for sinners like us. Right? A lot of times we think it is. We're very good lawyers for ourselves. Right? We tend to think we are much more righteous than we are. We're much easier at seeing everybody else's sin and seeing the goodness in us. And so a lot of times we think we want more justice. We think of it as something that works out well for us. But you know what justice actually looks like? It looks like Noah's flood. 
That's what justice looks like. Justice looks like Sodom and Gomorrah. That's what justice looks like. We are all sinners. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. None of us can stand and tell God we want justice and have that work out well for us. If you think it does, it's, you're deluded. You're absolutely deluded, and you've got to snap out of it. None of us can ask that of God and have it work out well. But justice is a good thing. God is just. But justice is not a good thing personally for the guilty. Right? I like a law against murder. I don't want people murdering me. But once I become a murderer, that law is not good for me. Does that make sense? You guys tracking with that? Justice for sinners, like us, means death. Flat out. The wages of sin are death. Scripture could not be more clear about us. That's what justice means. So if God relates to us on the basis of eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, if he relates to us on the basis of lex talionis, no one in this room would draw their next breath. That would be justice. So you see why there needs to be a corrective, right? You see why there needs to be something more here. If we were righteous people, Lex Talionis would be enough. That would work. We could relate to God based on that. It would be fine, but we're not. So there has to be something else. So let's look at what Jesus holds out as the corrective. He goes on to give four different examples, four different, of, of a different way to handle being sinned against. That's not an eye for an eye that he lays out for people going to this kingdom. I'm going to go through each of these briefly and talk about them. The, the real important thing, though, is to realize that these are examples of an pr- underlying principle, right? If you try to kind of talk about every situation that's applied, you could never do it, right? We've got to see what's underneath each of these things. So that's where we're going to ultimately get to. So first thing he says, hey, if somebody slaps you on the right cheek, give them your left. Right? So this slapping on a cheek, you know, it would hurt, but it's primarily insulting. Right? It, it's, it's a derogatory move towards somebody. Right? And, and some people think the specifying the right cheek is significant because you primarily slapped with your right hand, so that would be a, a backhanded slap, which was even more offensive. Hurt more, and it was more degrading. Right? So that's kind of the idea here. Right? When, when, what do you want to do? Right? What do you want to do when somebody degrades you? I can tell you what I want to do. I can absolutely tell you what I want to do every single time. And it is not give them the other cheek. Right? I'm ready to roll. Like, 100%. Like, that's, I, I hate it. Like, there's stuff inside of me that happens when things like that happen that I'm glad you guys can't see. Right? And I imagine you're similar. Right? I don't think I'm unique in this. Maybe I am, and you guys can work with me, right? But I think this is a pretty normal, natural human response. We do not like being degraded. We do not like being put down like that. And so what Jesus says is, is not what any of us would ever dream of doing, right? Well, let's keep going. He says, the next one, he says, if somebody sues you for your tunic, give them your cloak as well. 
And important things to understand about this is that these were basically the two pieces of clothing that you wore in Jesus' day. One's an outer garment, one's an inner gar- garment, right? And if you look back in the Old Testament, there was provision where if you were in a lawsuit or something, you could only lose one of these in the lawsuit. You couldn't lose both because you would essentially be left naked, right? People didn't have closets full of clothes back then. Clothes were very valuable and very precious. So that was a protection for people. So people wouldn't face the degradation of, of nakedness. You could sue them, but you couldn't take both. And so Jesus is, is taking things really far. That's, you're going to see that every time. He's, Jesus is using hyperbole here. He's taking these things as far as he possibly can to prove a point. So he's saying, give them both. He's basically saying, just give them everything, right? This was a shameful thing to be left naked without clothing. That's the idea. Go farther than people were even illegally allowed to go. So that's the suing for the tunic, the cloak. The next one, this is probably the hardest one for me. Walk a mile, go to. Right? Sometimes we talk about going the extra mile like somebody works really hard. Not the context here, right? The context here is very specific to Jesus' time. The Roman Empire, right? They had a provision specifically primarily pertained to their military where they could compel any of their subservient peoples to carry anything they wanted to one mile, right? So it was a, a tool for the military to use, but it was capped somewhat uh, to kind of make it, to moderate it, right? But like, let's just move this into our modern day context, right? Israel's an, an oppressed people, right? So imagine, imagine China has taken over the United States, right? We have Chinese overlords now, and they are now allowed to roll up in their Jeep, give you some heavy thing, and make you carry it a mile. How you doing with that? Right? Do you like, can you like get the sense of how much that would get to you? Like, and I, I can't, I don't have a category for this, right? This would be so, so hard. And that's exactly what Jesus is talking about. And he says, you know, like, he doesn't say, if they ask you, do it. He doesn't say, if they ask you, do it with a good attitude. He says, no, offer to go further. It's crazy. <laughs> this is where people get in the sermon, they're like, what, what, is, what is this guy talking about? This is nuts. Lastly, he says, give to the one who asks. Somebody asks you for something, give it to them. If somebody begs for something, Give them what they ask for, right? Just straight up. And you know what happens when we see people begging, asking for stuff, right? Sometimes we're compassionate, but what else do we do? We come up with all sorts of reasons why we shouldn't, right? Oh, they would probably do this with it. Uh, They would probably do that with it. It's a bad idea. You know, all sorts of reasons, right? Jesus doesn't say if they beg for a good reason. If they ask for a good reason, he just says if they do and you have it, give it. So all of these things, all these four examples are drawing out, they're illustrating a principle that Jesus is getting at. And he's using hyperbole to get there. So one thing we need to avoid that will lead you into problems is we cannot go hyper-literal with this interpretation. That's not how hyperbole works. We want to read scripture the way that it's written. And we read hyperbole, we need to read it as hyperbole, right? It's a little bit like what we've already seen in the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus talked about, when we talked about lust, and he said, talk about cutting off your arm or gouging out your eye. He didn't actually expect you to do that. What he was doing was driving home the point that sin is so dangerous and so deadly and so awful that if you could stop it, 
By losing a body part, you should. He's trying to drive home how bad sin is, right? That's what he's trying to do. Of course, we know you can't do that because sin flows from the heart, not your hand or your eye. He's doing something similar here, right? He's taking things, he's not just, he's taking things as far as he can the other direction to illustrate a point, right? Jesus himself didn't even take these entirely, like, literally. Jesus, when he go, went before the Sanhedrin, he gets slapped. And you know what he doesn't do? He doesn't say, please slap the other cheek. He doesn't retaliate, right? So even Jesus, if these are meant to be taken, like, extremely literally, Jesus doesn't even do it. So that's one of our big clues, that that's not how we're supposed to read this. It would also lead us to some unbiblical places, right? You know, if you give your tunic and your cloak, you're now running around naked. And there's lots of things in Scripture that point to that not being a good thing to do, right? Right? If you take the give to the beggar and give to the one who asks, we could all go drain our bank accounts today and give everything we have. But there are other things that we're called to do. We're called to care for our families. We're called to do these other things. We would end up as beggars ourselves and end up failing in other things God has called us to do. Right? So when hyperbole is used, we need to read it for what it's meant to do. Jesus is driving home the underlying point and principle. And that principle is that when we are wronged as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, our primary concern is not justice for ourselves. That is not our primary concern anymore. That's what it is naturally. That's all we want, right? Rather, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, we die to that for something better. We die for that to be able to bear faithful witness to the mercy and grace of God for the good of the one who wronged us. Right, what Jesus is saying is that the loves of the person who's brought into the kingdom of heaven have been reordered. Right? In the kingdom of darkness, by nature, we love ourselves and pretty much nobody else. Even the things that look like love are really just using people for ourselves. We can't even wrap our heads around how self-centered we are. It is so blinding. The reformers used, I think Augustine did it first, the description of, of our sinful nature, they use the Latin phrase, incurvitus in se. It means to be curved in on yourself. The idea is a person who's so deformed that they've kind of like, imagine stretching me out and then bending me forward so that my face is staring at myself. That's what they say, like that's the way they describe what sin has done to us. We were created to be outward facing. We were created to be oriented towards God and other people. Love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself, right? That's a restoration of what we're designed for. What sin does is it curves us in. It puts us at the top of the heap where we don't belong and where we don't function well. It's not healthy. And so what Jesus is saying here, there is this, this, this radical reordering of what we care about when we are brought into the kingdom of heaven. No longer when we are wronged is our first priority, I better get my pound of flesh, and they better know not to mess with me again. They'll regret it. That has, that has fallen off the table of what we care about. What we care about now is bearing witness faithfully to the fact that there is mercy and grace with God because of Jesus Christ. And care for the person who wronged us. 
Those two things have now trumped. They have moved ahead of our love for ourselves as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. A shorter way of putting this is that this is about dying to self. That's what this is fundamentally about. That's the fundamental principle. We do not order our lives. We do not make decisions. We do not interact with our world and the people in it based on what I can get from me. That is not our priority anymore. Our priority is the glory of God and the good of our neighbor, even when our neighbor is our enemy. Usually we scream for justice. We scream for justice. And now instead we say, I will suffer loss in order to bear witness to the mercy and grace of God. Right? The very reason that we are here, the reason we are in the kingdom of heaven, is that because God's justice is joined with mercy and grace. If it was not, we would not be here. Justice will ultimately be done totally. God is just. That is one of the things that he is. This is not a compromise of that. But we live in a time when God forbears his justice. He does it, but he forbears. He delays his justice in order to show mercy and grace. He delays his justice in order to show mercy and grace. One of the beautiful places we see this is in 2 Peter 3. If you guys know the background, Peter writes either right before the time of Nero or during the time of Nero. Not a good time to be a Christian, right? Nero was one of the first significant, broader persecutions of the church. There were little local ones, but it broadened out significantly under him. And so the church is, is staring down the barrel of this and thinking, like, hey, aren't we supposed to win? Like, where's Jesus? Where, where, like, where's, this doesn't look good. This is not what we expected. And Peter has this to say to them. Beginning in verse 8 of Second Peter 3. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved. That with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of our Lord, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spotted blemish and at peace and count the patience of our Lord as salvation just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him do you see what Peter's laying out he's like guys don't misinterpret what's going on God is not God sees you he's not ceased to notice evil in fact as much as you may hate evil and you may despise injustice, you have no idea the way that God loathes it. We don't even begin to comprehend how much God hates evil. Right? So his delay, the fact that injustice exists, what well, Peter is saying, this is not God not caring about justice. 
God is perfectly just, and every single thing will be held to account. His justice is perfect, right? But you're interpreting this wrong. It's not him not caring. It's the fact that he has chosen to pursue mercy and grace. And so he's delayed. He's delayed so that he can redeem sinners before he judges sin. The fact that there is evil and injustice in this world is not a sign that God doesn't care, that God is not in control. It's a sign that God is merciful and gracious. If God did not delay his justice, you would not be his child. You are here precisely because a holy God, in his mercy, has allowed injustice to go on while he brings his people in. That's why that verse 15, it says, count the patience of our Lord as salvation, right? If it wasn't for the Lord's patience in dealing with evil, none of us would be his. None of us would have life. But of course, this is wedded with the promise that that perfect justice is going to come. When Christ comes again, it is not going to be to bring mercy and grace. It is going to be to bring justice and righteousness. In the new heavens and new earth, perfect justice and perfect righteousness will, re- will reign. There will be no need for lex talionis or any of this because there will be no more sin. It will all be stripped away and done with. But that's the second coming. In his first coming, as Paul says in his letter to Timothy, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. So that leads us, of course, to Christ. And I think that he, of course, is the central figure we have to consider with this. Jesus did not come to do justice. That was not his primary purpose in coming the first time. He did not come to do justice, but to absorb the justice of God for sinners so that they might receive something more and better than that. Jesus did not exact what was due to him at every turn. He did the opposite. He lowered himself for our sake. Paul puts it this way in Philippians. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was made in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Guys, <laughs> Jesus, just by becoming incarnate, lowered himself far more than you will ever have to. Him leaving his throne and the glory of God to take on human flesh and live in this broken, fallen place was such an incredible condescension. And he did not have to do it. There was nothing that demanded that of him. He did it willingly for us. There's a greater sacrifice than anything we could ever be asked to do. But beyond that, what did he do when he came here? He was barely even born when a king's trying to kill him. And he's going to spend his life being mocked. Scorned. He's going to be beaten, whipped, shamed, ultimately put to death. Not just any death, 
the death of a traitor, a death that brought about the maximum amount of shame and degradation. And he deserved none of it. He deserved none of it. And not only that, he bore all this with the hosts of heaven at his beckoning call. One word, not even a word, a thought from him. And the angelic host would have descended and wrought perfect justice and delivered him. In a moment, just one moment of, of weakness, just one moment of being done with this, and he could have done that. He was not there because he couldn't do anything about it. He could have gotten his pound of flesh. He could have gotten what he deserved at any moment. But what did he do? He absorbed all of that injustice, all of that suffering. Why? For you, for you. He suffered so that you did not have to. It was all for us. It was all for his people. He could have had justice at any moment, but he pursued something greater. The glory of God in grace for sinners. Hebrews 12 puts it this way. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Right? He endured that suffering now for the joy of having a redeemed people. For the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And church, lest, lest we miss this point, we need to remember that we are just as culpable for Jesus' crucifixion as anybody who held the hammer and the nails or the whip or anything else. Jesus was not on the cross because Romans put him there or because the Jews sold him out. He was there because of the sins of his people. So when he turned the other cheek, when he absorbed all these losses, they weren't at the hands of other people. They were at our hands. They were the result of our sin. And instead, he bore it and he did good to us. An incalculable good. We live because he took our justice and he gave us mercy and grace. Right? So as citizens of heaven, we are citizens of heaven solely because this is true, solely because Jesus did not live by lex talionis, but instead showed us mercy and grace. We exist as a people. We have moved from death to life because Jesus related to us like this. Right? And he has left us here to bear witness to it in every way that we can. That's what we're here. The church is an embassy of the kingdom of heaven. And the kingdom of heaven is about proclaiming and making known the mercy and grace that is available to sinners because of the work of Jesus Christ. That is why we are here. That is our mission. That is our purpose.
We are not Christ. We can't take anybody else's judgment for them. But we are being conformed to his image through the work of his spirit. And as we are, we can die to ourselves to bear witness to them about the mercy and grace that's found in him. Right? This is why Paul describes, uses the picture of being an ambassador. We are God's ambassador making his appeal to be reconciled to God. That's what we are. We are here to tell those who are lost in darkness, there is mercy and grace for you in the person of Christ. Be reconciled to God. And every part of our life should bear witness to the fact that we have been recipients of that mercy and grace, that that mercy and grace exists with our God because of Jesus. So how do we... How do we walk this out? What does this look like? Again, it, and this is something that touches literally almost everything in our lives. We can't just run through a bunch of scenarios. Jesus gave us four. But I think a couple of key things will help us. One of those is that we need to be honest about what drives us when we relate to other people. We are excellent lawyers for ourselves. We're excellent at justifying what we do and how we do things and making it seem virtuous when it's actually not. Um, We will pursue our own. We'll find ways to pursue our pound of flesh to, to get what we want or need out of somebody, but somehow justify it as this kind of pursuit of righteousness, right? And we need to be aware of the fact that our flesh does that. One of the things that marks the kingdom of darkness and our flesh is lies, Satan is the father of lies. The only thing it has to do is deception. It has nothing good to offer, so everything is lies. Smoke and mirrors, right? So we need to be very honest with ourselves when we are relating to other people. Right? Am I really loving my neighbor when I'm doing this, or is that my little cloak to allow me to pursue what I want? Right? We should not be driven by defensiveness, by self-protection, by getting our due. That's what the flesh pursues, right? And so when we feel those, we feel those things pop up, because they're going to, right? When you feel that urge to defend yourself, when you feel that urge to, to self-protect, when you feel that urge to do things in this vein, you, you need to spot it, right? You need to be on the lookout for it, because you're moving towards that direction, right? Where you have, the, your, your loves have become disordered. Yourself has come back from the dead and is sitting back on top right, where it does not belong, right, and one of the most egregious ways this happened, I feel like it's important to say this, because I've heard this used this way, and it's frankly demonic, there's nothing about this passage that justifies or protects abusers, absolutely nothing, this passage does not call you to allow somebody to abuse and use you. If anyone has told you that, it is a lie from the pit of hell. To love an abuser is to expose them. They are trapped in sin and darkness, and the most gracious thing that can happen for them is for it to come to light so they can be crushed by the law of God and be drawn to his mercy and grace in Christ. It is the best possible thing that can happen to them. 
To expose an abuser is not selfishness. That is not self-love. That is actually love and care for that person and those they might hurt. And this has been used to do that. And if it's been used on you to do that, it is a lie. Do not believe it. Please, please. There's a horrid distortion of what Christ is saying. Love demands that that sort of thing be outed and brought to light. One thing I've tried to show as we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount is that when, when God calls us to these things, as he's painting out this picture of true righteousness, too often we think of God's law as this arbitrary thing where he's trying to keep us back from good stuff, right? He calls us to away from lust. But lust seems fun. Why does he got to be such a mean, like, why does he got to be such a meanie? Right? Which is a horrible view of God, right? We talked about that. God is not arbitrary in his law. When God gives us laws, when he's restraining us from something, he's restraining us from something that would take us away from what is actually good and meaningful for us. And that's especially important when we have things like this that are hard. This is hard. Like flat out. This is not, this is so hard to do. And those ones in particular, it's very easy for us to feel like God is just kind of being mean. Like, God just wants me to get hurt by people and do anything about it. That when God calls us away from something, it's because that thing takes us away from what is actually purposeful and meaningful. To bear witness to mercy and grace is not just something we have to do. It is something we get to do. It is a, a privilege to be able to image Christ in this way. Right? This is not a call to some slavish, this is a call to something glorious and good. It's something valuable for us to spend ourselves on. And I've brought this up before, but when we find ourselves asking questions to try to wriggle out of this, right? Trying to find ways to minimize it and and make it lesser, we're showing that we have that negative view of God, where he's just kind of being mean and trying to keep us away from good. Right? When God calls us away from something and to something else, we need to believe him that what he calls us to is, is good. That's where joy is actually found. That is where life is found. That is what's actually valuable to spend ourselves on. So when he calls us to do this, he's not calling us to some kind of like morbid thing. He's calling us to what is good. It is good for you to spend yourself glorifying the grace and mercy of God and seeking the good of your neighbor, even when they harm you. That is unequivocally good. And to be called to that is God calling you to what is good to spend yourself on. That is so important to remember in the midst of the difficulty of this. Rather than trying to spend our lives, always trying to settle the score, right? To get a little temporal justice, to just try to get these things, which will never be satisfied, right? There's no perfect justice here. You'll always be striving to get enough to be okay. Instead, we get to bear witness to the mercy and grace of God. This is so much better, as hard as it may seem, and as unnatural as it seems. So much better than any pound of flesh we could extract from somebody for ourselves. But like I said, it's hard. It's hard. We, the old man of the flesh is still there, right? We know its ways very well, and they seem very appealing a lot of times. So how do we actually do this? How do we actually move towards it? Well, the first thing is 
supernaturally, right? This is not a bootstrap yourself to it kind of thing, right? This is something, you have to be born again for this. You have to be made into a new person. You can't tell just natural people out there, oh yeah, just care about everybody else more than yourself. It'll go great for you. Literally incapable of doing it. We have to be made into something entirely new. The good news is that this is precisely what Christ does, right? We are born again by his spirit. We are made into a new creation, right? This is something that the spirit of God produces in us. It's not going to be sourced in us. It's got to come from him, right? Which should be comforting, right? Because if I I look at this and I think I have to come up with this, I am daunted as heck, right? Like I just, I can't do that, right? I need, it has something that has to be worked in me. And that's what God does. He conforms us to the image of his son. He works these things in us. It comes from his Holy Spirit doing his sanctifying work in us. Right? But what are some of the things he uses to do that? Well, first, he causes us to remember how Christ has related to us. Right? Who you are and all you have is because he related to you in the way that he's calling you to relate to other people. Remember who you were. Remember who you were. Titus 3.3 3 says this, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's, that's us outside of Christ, all of us. That's Paul writing that. He was like Mr. Super Religious Guy, I kept the law of Pharisee. And he says, we ourselves. He wraps himself up into that. If Paul fits it, we sure do. That's who we were. Right? And we remember that. When people relate to us in ways like that, we start to be sparked more towards compassion. Right? We, remember, we know. I remember that. I remember when I was imprisoned like that. I remember that I used to use people like that. And how I couldn't get out of it. It was only the grace of God that delivered me. Man, can they see that grace? Can I show them that grace? Right? We want others' sin, first and foremost, to spark us to compassion. That's the heart of Christ. But to us, to those people, right? That, that, those people that Titus described, he did not come to give justice, but to give grace. Paul goes on to say, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Man, what a shift happens in five verses. From, from, from utter darkness, just devouring each other, to heirs according to the hope of eternal life, all because of how Jesus relates to us. And church, that's how he continues to relate to you. He's not sitting around waiting to change his mind towards you every day based on how you do. His work to make you an heir of eternal life is done. He did it all. So even as you fail in this every day, you are still his beloved. He still paid for all of that at Calvary. He still loves you. So we don't have to pursue this out of a place of fear, but out of a place of thankfulness and gratitude for the riches that we have received. 
we need to remember that the fact that, that Jesus said we would have trouble in this world, that we would be treated like him. We bear his name, and it's not surprising that the world treats us like him. We don't chase this. We don't try to be treated that way. But when we are called to it, it's, it's an honor to be treated like our Savior. When we do suffer injustice now, it is not so much a loss, but an opportunity. An opportunity to bear witness to Christ. And lastly, this is very, very important. Remember that justice will ultimately be done. Right? God has not turned a blind eye to the evil. Everything that you suffer, he knows. He knows. And every bit of it will have a justice meted out either in the person of Christ or in the person of the sinner. But everything will be held to account. The balances will be even. Right? So part of this is not, this is not a forsaking of justice, but this is entrusting ourselves to the justice of God. Right? Not seeking it for ourselves, but trusting that his justice will be perfect. One last passage in Romans 12. Paul says this, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Church, as counterintuitive as it is, this is how we win, right? This is how God has designed the church to win. There's so much talk about how God uses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise and the weak things of the world to shame the strong. This is right at the heart of that, right? Absorbing injustices and suffering and showing grace and mercy to those. Like, I, again, I was in the military. I trained and learned how to win battles. We don't talk about any of this stuff. This is, this is not the method. We want to make people care dearly for everything, right? This is a completely counterintuitive way to win. But we have moved into a different kingdom. And this is the way the kingdom of light, the kingdom of heaven, works. Living this way, pursuing this way, does not make us helpless victims. Instead, we are fighting for God's purposes by God's means. We cannot pursue what God has for us by the world's methods. Now, as we're doing this, will we look foolish to the world? Absolutely. Absolutely, we will look like fools to the world. Will we look weak to the world? Yep. We will. We will look very weak to the world. But you know what? You know what else looked foolish to the world? You know what else looked weak to the world? The cross. The cross. And that was the most game-changing, monumental, formative moment in human history. And it was mocked, scoffed, laughed at, right? So we need to trust God when he says that he is going to work in this way, that this is what he calls us to as the kingdom of heaven, that this is what he does to accomplish what he wants to accomplish in the world. 
We don't need to go back to the ways of the kingdom of darkness. We need to trust his promises and what he wants to accomplish as citizens of the kingdom of light. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you so much, first and foremost, for the personal work of Christ, for the fact that you and your kindness and mercy did not relate to us by the principle of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But instead, you yourself suffered injustice that you might show us grace and mercy. And it was literally the only way we could possibly ever find it, the only way we could possibly have anything but death and judgment from you. But because you have done so, we now find that the throne of the universe is not a place of judgment for us, but a place of mercy and grace. And we thank you and we praise you for the work of Christ on our behalf. And Lord, we ask that as we rest in that, as we rejoice in that, that you would, by your Spirit, make us more and more into the image of Christ. Lord, properly order our loves so that we care more about bearing witness to your glory and your mercy and grace for sinners, that we care more about our witness in in showing that to our neighbors, even when they harm us, than we do about taking care of ourselves, about getting what we deserve. Lord, we know that is not something that we can do. It's not something we can drum up. It's something you have to do in us by your Spirit. We ask that you would. Lord, by your Spirit, help us to, to die to ourselves. We have been crucified with Christ. We no longer live, but Christ lives within us. Make that true with how we move through life in this world. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Church, let's